afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to Prophecy Seminar Lesson 3. One week ago or two weeks ago, we started with the introduction to the book of Daniel in Prophecy Seminar Lesson Number 1. And then... Last week, we studied Prophecy Seminar Lesson Number 2, The Cosmic Warfare in Daniel. In the last two weeks, both of those programs have gone onto YouTube. You can see them there. My YouTube channel is entitled True Blue SDA. You can log in under that, or you can just type in Prophecy Seminar PS Lesson 01 or 02 or 03 if you want to catch up some of those lessons, and it'll look like that on the screen. And tonight, you can also have that same view if you want. You can have the screen share and you can also have access to the speaker. Thank you so much for muting your audio tonight as we start. So we have good, clear sound and a good background. Um, I'd like you to take tonight's lesson number three out of the folder. A brief question and answer can follow this session. If you have an urgent question, please place it in the chat room. Well, I think one of the most important things that we do tonight is to pray. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit, I'm asking, Father, tonight that you will bless us with, as Daniel had, wisdom and understanding. This is an amazing gift that you can give through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're asking you to be here and we ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Nikesh from India. I'll just get you to mute, brother, and thank you so much for being with us. All right, so here we are at Prophecy Seminar Lesson Number 3, and you have those uh, lessons in front of you. If you've taken time to do your lesson during the week, I want to tell you that um, it's going to be great, and you're going to get a lot more out of it because you're going to be able to view tonight's lesson like just watching a movie. We're at the top of page two. Conflict seems inevitable. In fact, conflict is one of the central themes of Scripture, as we saw in Lesson 2. The theme of the book of Daniel, as demonstrated in the events of ancient Babylon, is this same cosmic struggle between the God of heaven and the power of evil. The book of Daniel begins with Nebuchadnezzar's seeming defeat of the true God, but ends with a tremendous victory for the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar has shown again and again that God is still in control of human events. Remember that the focal point of the book of Daniel is the time of the end. Therefore, the events, stories and conflicts in the book of Daniel are to have an impact on us who are living in these last days. There are two issues over which controversy arises in the book of Daniel. These are the issues of worship and obedience. We will see them illustrated very clearly in the historical portions of Daniel. These same issues will reappear in the prophetic section of Daniel, indicating that they are to be a major issue in the final conflict. 
I'd like to share with you uh, five theme questions that I've made up about tonight's lesson. If you look at the screen, I'm going to ask you, how did Daniel get to Babylon? Number two, why did God allow the captivity of his people Israel? Three, why were the four Israeli boys from the tribe of Judah's uh, names changed? And number four, why did God give the food and drink laws to his ancient people? And number five, does God's Genesis diet actually work? So those are five questions that we will answer at the end of the program. So here we are in lesson three. If you've just joined us, please turn to page two. We're halfway down and we're right here at question number one. Our heading is, as on the front page, the controversy begins, lesson three and question one. Name the specific instances in the book of Daniel where the issues of worship and obedience illustrate the great controversy theme between Christ and Satan. Now, friends, what we're going to do here is we're going to actually jump into Daniel 1, 3, 4, 5, and 6, but not so much Daniel 2 tonight because we'll be handling that next week, and that's a big lesson, so make sure you do your homework if you can. So let's go to Daniel 1.8. We're looking for the issues of worship and obedience in Daniel 1 and verse 8. And Daniel writes in chapter 1 and verse 8, I'm in the New King James Version, and this is the version we're using tonight. I want to welcome all those who've just joined us who are joining us for the very first time tonight. Daniel writes in 1.8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, as we're going to discover this evening, the issues of worship and obedience actually revolve around what Daniel eats and what Daniel drinks. Now, as you look at the screen, we are actually going to pull back the curtain and we're going to look at these first six chapters, but not chapter two tonight. And we're going to find out that Daniel worships the true God. But what are the main issues in the other chapters? Let's jump into Daniel 3 and verse 10. And so Daniel's three friends say to King Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and soldiery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. The King James says the golden image. And so here we have a representation of the gold image. And what's interesting here is that Nebuchadnezzar does not worship the true God. Notice in the center of the illustration, the huge statue of gold that we'll study about in Daniel chapter 3. This was not just a gold statue, but this represented the king. And Nebuchadnezzar was a god, and so he didn't need to worship Israel's god, for he was a god and he worshipped the gods of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 25, we have a most unusual circumstance. We have King Nebuchadnezzar actually going through a mental health incident. In fact, it was more than a mental health incident. It was a total mental breakdown. In Daniel 4.25, it says about Nebuchadnezzar, they shall drive you, King Nebuchadnezzar, from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, 
and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So friends, I've just shortened Nebuchadnezzar's name there. It's a big name, isn't it? To the issue of worship and obedience here is Nebuchadnezzar's bout of insanity. And uh, I'm tempted to get into that, but we can't tonight. But in this chapter, we find that Nebuchadnezzar does not worship the true God until the very end of that story. In Daniel chapter 5 and verse 23, Nebuchadnezzar has died and Belshazzar is now the new king of Babylon. And so we dive into Daniel chapter 5 and verse 23. And here we have Belshazzar being challenged. And the heavenly messenger says through Daniel, and you have lifted yourself up, King Belshazzar, against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And so there's our answer, Belshazzar, Belshazzar's arrogant defiling or misuse of the Lord's vessels is the issue that has to do with worship and obedience. Because here with the writing on the wall, the unseen hand, Belshazzar, certainly does not worship the true God. And he has challenged the true God by drinking from the vessels taken from the Jewish temple and then celebrating the gods of Babylon, their victory over the God of Israel. In Daniel chapter 6, we move to a completely different story. And you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Then these men, the men trying to discredit Daniel and catch him out, assembled and they found, found Daniel praying and he was making supplication before God. That just means that Daniel was putting his requests before the Lord. And so the issue of worship and obedience here is that Daniel was praying. The problem was that the government of the day had outlawed prayer except to any other gods and the God of Babylon. And of course, Daniel was praying to the God of Israel. So there are our five answers in the issues of worship and obedience. And we find here again that Daniel does worship the true God. He honors the God of Israel, even though he's in captivity. Let me share with you the note under question one. We're halfway down page two. Thank you so much for all of those who have just joined us. Question two says, oh, sorry, the note says, throughout the historical portions of the book of Daniel, we see how Daniel's obedience to God and worship of God is continually threatened. The issue is clear in the book of Daniel. Governments may not try and impose legislation that inhibits or prohibits the worship of God or demands false worship, but only those who remain true and faithful to God will be delivered. Remember, the focal point of the book of Daniel is the end time. The prophecies of Daniel point to the last days when these issues will arise again. People in the end time will attempt to inhibit or prohibit true worship and impulse, impose false worship. The book of Daniel tells us clearly that God will have a victorious people who will overcome all these attempts to cause them to disobey or to pervert the worship of God. 
the issues in the book of Daniel are worship and obedience, as we've already said. The issues in the last days will also be worship and obedience. How important it is that today each one of us remains faithful to God. Friends, do we live in a society today that is a society where almost anything goes? Where everything that's done is all good? There's a secular mor morality and the beliefs of Christians today are not only disregarded, but they're mocked and ridiculed. And so friends, this journey that we're going on and these prophecy seminars are going to relate directly to the issues that Christians are facing in this society. We're not just going to leave these issues back in the day of Babylon and back in the day of Daniel, but we are going to apply these prophecies to the situation that we are in in these last days. Well, we're at the bottom of page two and we're going to question two. How do the prophecies of Daniel foretell the issue of worship and obedience? And we go to Daniel 7. So friends, the first six chapters are the stories, the narratives, the historical record, and then Daniel 7 to 12 are the prophecies. We're diving into a very serious prophecy here, a heavy prophecy in Daniel 7, 25 that relates to the little horn power. Please look at the screen. Regarding the little horn power, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. How do the prophecies of Daniel foretell the issue of worship and obedience? The little horn power speaks pompous. The King James says great or blasphemous words against the most high. And this power intends or thinks he can change God's times and God's laws. The note at the bottom of page two. Here in the prophecies, we see the issue of worship illustrated in the little horn power of Daniel 7. As he speaks great words against the most high. We see the issue of obedience illustrated in the little time sorry we see it illustrated in the little horn power of daniel 7 as he thinks to change the times and you can see on the screen there the times and the laws the book of daniel is concerned with these vital issues well let's go to our second heading tonight daniel's captivity we're at the top of page three the controversy begins in Daniel with the captivity of Daniel and his friends by Nebuchadnezzar. In this first chapter, we'll study the amazing story of how a young man and his friends face some very severe tests which were inflicted by a despotic ruler. We will also note the implications that these tests have for the rest of the book of Daniel. The tests described in chapter one seem very mild in comparison to the much greater test to come later in the book. But the lesson of chapter one is that only those who pass the minor tests will ever pass the major tests. If you have a, a pen handy, I'd like to underline that sentence. That could be in the quiz tonight. In fact, it will be in the quiz tonight. I'm gonna to read it again, it's very important. But the lesson of chapter one, Daniel chapter one, is that only those who pass the minor tests will ever pass the major tests and how true that is. 
How important then that we be faithful to God at all times. Question three, what did Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, do to Jerusalem, the city of God? We go back to Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. There's our answer. Friends, here we have the great battle between the city of Babylon, the city of evil, versus the city of Jerusalem also a city of evil who was supposed to be God's people. And that's why they were sold into captivity because they had abandoned the God of Israel, the God Yahweh, the God Jehovah. The note says in ancient times when kings besieged a city, they completely surrounded the city, cut off its water and food supply and waited until the inhabitants gave up. This was a terrible ordeal for the people in Jerusalem. Question four, we're halfway down page three. Who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to capture Jerusalem in Daniel 1 and verse 2? Many think it was just Nebuchadnezzar's will, but it wasn't. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar. I want you to remember that name, Shinar, to the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought the articles into the treasure house of his God, the Babylonian gods, and that was King Nebuchadnezzar who did that. Who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to capture Jerusalem? Of course, it was the Lord God of heaven who gave him that power and authorized him to take his own, God's own people captive because of their great sin and high-handed heaven, high-handed sins toward heaven, as I was reading this morning in the book of Ezra. Ezra prayed a prayer, I think in Ezra 9, a prayer to the Lord saying, Lord, our sins have stacked up to the heavens. Have mercy on our souls. Question five, how did God allow Judah to be taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar? Now, friends, we're going to Jeremiah 2, but I'm going to go to a very, very old translation, but a modern translation, a favorite of mine when I was... A young man and a teenager, we're going to Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13. But before we do, I want you to notice here one of the gods of Babylon. We'll be speaking about these gods soon when we look at the names of the boys. This is the Babylonian god Nabu. And Nabu is here represented or this statue is actually in the Iraqi Museum. Now, we're going to uh, Jeremiah 2, 10 to 13. And I'm drawing on the Living Bible because I think it captures the text very accurately. Please look at the screen. Look around you and see, Jeremiah writes to Israel, if you can find another nation anywhere that has traded in its old gods for new ones, even though their gods are nothing, send to the west, send to the east, see if anyone there has ever heard so strange a thing as this. And yet my people, Jeremiah writes, have given up their glorious God for silly idols. I want to pause there for a moment. You know, when we think back to people worshipping idols, we can be very smug and self-sufficient over this. We can be very superior. But I want to ask you tonight, what about the modern idols that we worship? Many people worship the idol of money. They just can never get enough money. Others worship the idol of power. 
Others have their home as an idol. Others make an idol the vehicle that they drive and tell you all about it. Then there are those who have idols in their children or their family or their extended family and they don't even realize it's an idol and they put that before everything else in their life. Others want social status, they're social climbers and they want you to know how important and how needed they are in our society. And then it might be hard to believe, but right here in Australia, we have the epidemic of workaholism. I don't know if you realize, but Australians are some of the most hardworking people in all the world. And in fact, many Australians have years and years of holidays accumulated that they never take because they worship the idol of work. So let's not ridicule the ancients for their idols. At least their idols could be seen. What about the idols that we worship today? And I'm asking you, if one of those idols are yours, have you recognized it? And what are we going to do about it? Myself included. We're in Jeremiah chapter two, and I'm reading verse 12 from the Living Bible. The heavens are shocked at such a thing, Jeremiah writes, and they shrink back in horror and dismay. What are they shocked about? That God's people, Israel, have given up their glorious God for silly idols. For my people have done two evil things. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have built for themselves broken cisterns that can't hold water. So, friends, let's go to our answer. Why did God allow Judah to be taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar? The, king, the New King James Version says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves broken systems that can hold no water. Friends, if you've been in the Middle East, you will know what a precious resource water is. Let me share the note under question five, halfway down page three. Through the prophet Jeremiah and other Bible prophets, God had predicted the warfare of the Babylonians against Judah because they had forsaken the Lord. They'd ceased to worship him and were disobedient to the word of God. False worship and disobedience led to Israel's captivity. Friends, if you have a look there on the screen, there we have an idol that Queen Jezebel and King Ahab brought into the temple, the sanctuary of the Most High God in Old Testament times. Some of you might know that this is the Egyptian god named Hathor, H-A-T-H-O-R, Hathor the cow goddess. And so friends, what is this Egyptian god doing in the temple of the Most High God? And this is exactly the problem that we are dealing with tonight, that God is sick to death of his people abandoning him for silly and false idols. Please uh, come with me to question number six. Who seems to be winning the conflict as the book of Daniel opens? We go to Daniel chapter one and verse two again. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God in Jerusalem, which Nebuchadnezzar carried into the land of Shinar, what Shinar mean? To the house of his God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Friends, who seems to be winning the conflict as the book of Daniel opens? It's very depressing, isn't it? It seems like the gods of Babylon are smashing the God of Israel. So what about Shina? Have a look on the screen. Shina is from the word Sanha. 
It refers to northern Mesopotamia, the area of ancient Babylonia, which is Iraq today. And I have a map for you here on the screen. On the left-hand side, or the western side, you can see God's people. And on the eastern side, or the right-hand side, you can see Shina, which is the kingdom of Babylonia, which resides there within the blue lines. The country of Elam on the far right, uh, on the east there, of course, is ancient Persia. Medo-Persia, Medos, the Medes up at the top, the Persians at the bottom, ancient Medo-Persia, and today, of course, that is the great nation of Iran. The note says, the book of Daniel begins with an apparent defeat for the true God, but let us not forget that it ends with a glorious triumph for Daniel's God. Evil may appear to prosper now, but someday God's truth will magnificently triumph. Would you come over the page with me as we turn over to page four and uh, we are going to go to question seven. What kind of people did Nebuchadnezzar choose from among the captives of Judea to be educated in the schools of Babylon? We're in Daniel chapter one, verses three and four. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, remember that name, Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles young men in whom there were no blemish. So there's our answers. What kind of people did Nebuchadnezzar bring? Did he just round people up from the street to be re-educated in the University of Babylon? No, he didn't. He chose from the king's descendants from the royal line. And I'll tell you why in a moment. They were young men in whom they seemed faultless. There was nothing wrong with him. They were the best of the best, the cream of the cream. Daniel 1.4, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. They had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And there is a very important point. So friends, the answer here is that good looking, they were good looking, they were gifted in all wisdom, they possessed knowledge and they were quick to understand. The King James Version translates this as cunning in knowledge and understanding science. I think that's a very interesting and precise translation. And of course, quick to understand means quick to understand and interpret. And they're going to need that wisdom and understanding for Daniel chapter 2 and the King's Dream, which we're studying next week. Please don't miss next week, Daniel chapter 2. Question number eight at the bottom of page four. How long was the educational process to last? And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And here's our answer. And how long? three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king and so the process was three years i want to ask you tonight how long is a university course today it's usually three to four years to get a bachelor of arts um, and longer for other degrees so what nebuchadnezzar was doing here is training these royal captives to be loyal to Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, and to be loyal to Babylon's gods. They'd then be sent back as spies, emissaries, and rulers to rule for Nebuchadnezzar back in Jerusalem 
and they would spy for him and they would trade information, but they would also have the respect of the people because they would be of the king's seed and the king's descendants. So it was very, very wise, that process of training him in the University of Babylon then sending them back to control the nation that had to remain a vassal annexed by Babylon, but still be loyal. Question nine at the bottom of page four, how long, sorry, out of all the children of Judah who entered into the schooling, who are the only four youths named in the biblical record in Daniel 1.6? Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Friends, I want you to look at the screen. The word Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. And the El is the name for God. So Daniel's name has God in it and Mishael's name has God in it as well. Notice there Elohim, the I am ending is the plural, which reminds us that our God is one in unity, but is a multiplicity of the name of the Father, the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. So out of all the children of Judah who entered into the schooling, who are the only four youths named in the biblical record, they are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Let's go to question 10. We're at the top of page five. What Babylonian names were given to these four youth in Daniel 1.7? To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. Friends, this chief of the eunuchs, this Ashpenaz, what was his role? in the kingdom of Babylon. Friends, do you remember in ancient times, Israeli kings who had wives and harems, do we remember Solomon? Remember Solomon, he had, wasn't it 700 wives and 300 concubines? I remember a little boy who was being asked in Sunday school about this and he told the teacher, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. The poor little guy, was actually trying to remember the word concubines. But if you can imagine a thousand wives and children together in one place serving the king, then you can imagine that they might've got a little bit prickly, especially when they were brought into the presence of the king and he would ask the attendant, um, what's her name again? And what's my kid's names? So friends, a very, very challenging role, the chief of the eunuchs, the chief of the harem. In Daniel 1.7, it says to them, Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, he gave them names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. And so there are our answers. Let's just fill them in. Belteshazzar, make sure you make it Belteshazzar, not Belshazzar, because that is the king of Daniel chapter 5. Then there's the name Shadrach, the name Meshach, and the name Abednego. I remember in, uh, you know, uh, when we're studying the Bible as kids, I think it's a little memory verse, shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go to remind us of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the four names. All right, I'm going to read to you the note. You might like to direct your attention to the screen because I think that will be easier. In an attempt to totally Babylonianize these youth, they were given new names to signify their loyalty to Babylon. Please look at the screen now. And to the gods of Babylon. The name Daniel means God is my judge. His Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, means Bel protect the king's life. 
Bel was one of the popular gods of Babylon. The name Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious, while the Babylonian name Shadrach refers to an allegiance to the Babylonian god Marduk. The name Mishael means who belongs to God. And he became Meshach, a reference to another Babylonian god who belongs to Aku. The name Azariah, meaning Jehovah helps, was changed to Abednego, servant of the god Nabu. We just saw his statue a little bit earlier. Friends, I have a favourite book that I'd just like to, uh, to show you here. This is Jacques Ducan's book, Secrets of Daniel. It's an absolutely fantastic book. And I just want to take a moment to read from this book. So please just uh, consider this extra information. I'm reading Secrets of Daniel by Jacques Ducan. Uh, he is a French Israeli and he lectured me when I was doing my Master of Arts in Religion in 1996. So I know him personally and he was right here at Avondale College. This is on page 18 speaking about the resistance because in these names, Daniel's done something really, really tricky. Ducan writes, the three captives, especially Daniel, quickly reacted to the new program. Already the renditions of the Babylonian names in the book of Daniel allude to this. When compared to the names catalogued in secular documents, one can observe that the biblical texts, the divine element has been systematically been deformed. So what Ducan's saying there is, Although the boys' names were the true gods in the secular records, for the Bible, Daniel has deformed the names so no glory is given to any Babylonian gods. I think that's fantastic. So let's go to our next screen. He wrote, instead of Belshazzar, Daniel is named Belteshazzar. Have a look on the screen with a T, so that the name of the god Bel has been deformed into the name Belt. That's pretty tricky, isn't it? And then Hananiah, instead of Shadaku, Hananiah is called Shadrach. The name of the god Aku has been reduced to the Hebrew letter K. Instead of Meshalem Marduk, Mishael carries the name Meshach. The name of the god Marduk is here also abridged to the Hebrew letter K. And K, of course, stands for CH. And we don't need to go into an English lesson tonight, but many of you will know what I'm saying there. And finally, instead of Adi Nabu, Azariah acquires the name Abednego, for Abed is the Hebrew translation of the Babylonian term Adi, servant. As for the name of the god Nabu, it has been deformed instead of Nabu into Nego. Thus, the names of the Babylonian gods lose their own identity through such linguistic sleight of hand. The author of the book of Daniel, as well as the bearers of the names themselves, express resistance to what was happening. That's Secrets of Daniel, page 18 and 19. I thought that you would find that absolutely fascinating, as did I. All right, let's go to our third heading. We're halfway down page five. Daniel and his friends attested. Question 11, what was to be the diet for those who were selected for this special education in Daniel 1 and verse 5? 
And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. In fact, the word delicacies has been more accurately translated in the King James Version as meat. Many of you remember back to the days when delicatessens served meat. So friends, our answer here is, what was to be the diet for those who were selected for the special education? It was of the king's delicacies, special cuts of meat from the king's table, and of course, special wine that he drank. Now, friends, I want to just take a pause and try and get to the, um, the crux of what's going on here. Some people have suggested to me that this is no big deal. Daniel can eat of the meat and drink of the wine of the table. It's not much difference to Daniel having a, or us having a hamburger and a beer today. What's all the problem here? What is the story behind the story? Friends, let me briefly take you back to the history of tests over food in the scripture. Do you remember the first one in Genesis chapter 3 where Eve took on the serpent and sinned and uh, ate from the tree that God told her not to, therefore failing the first of the diet tests? In Exodus 16, God was training his people after 400 years in Egypt to get back to keeping the seventh day of the week by going out and collecting manna, but they weren't to go out on the seventh day. And guess what? Some of the people went out on the seventh day and again, they failed a test that had to do with food and diet. We know here in Daniel 1.8 that Daniel passed this test with his three friends because he refused to eat the king's meat or drink the king's wine. In Matthew 4, 1 to 4, we have Satan tempting Jesus to eat from the stones of bread. If you've ever eaten uh, fresh bread or, or got the whiff of bread that's just cooking in a hot oven, it's very, very tempting, isn't it? But Jesus passed this test for he said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. And that's Matthew 4, 4. There was a fifth test and in a vision or a dream, um, the apostle Peter saw a sheet of unclean animals let down from heaven in Acts 10 and also Acts 11 verses 5 to 10. And he said to God, no way, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So this is interesting. Peter in the New Testament is still abiding by what some people call wrongly the Old Testament Jewish food laws. So friends, as we come back here, we need to note, what is the real problem going on with eating a hamburger and having a beer? Dukan writes, a more careful observation of the meals reveals the king's intentions. Indeed, the meat-wine association characterizes both in the Bible and in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, the ritual meal taken in the context of a worship service. To participate in such a meal implied submission to the Babylonian cult and recognition of Nebuchadnezzar as a god. The daily consumption of meat and wine was aimed more specifically at making those involved be loyal to the king and consecrated to religious service. That's Secrets of Daniel, page 17 and 18. So friends, that's an amazing book. If you would like a copy of that, go to your local ABC. It's called Wisdom and Dreams of a Jewish Prince in Exile. I have a copy here that I'm happy to, uh, to give to somebody. 
So uh, please don't hesitate to ask me. I have a spare one and uh, I'd be happy if you like reading and going deeper. This is a fantastic book. Well, we're at question 12, halfway down page five. We're going into a bit more detail. What had God told the Israelites about drinking wine? So we've looked at why Daniel didn't eat the meat. What about the wine? What's the problem here? Most Christians today drink wine. Well, here's Solomon in Proverbs 20 and verse one. He knows a lot about wine. He knows a lot about women and he knows a lot about song. He says here that wine is a mocker. He says strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Can I just ask you one question? Do you think that's a positive statement about alcohol or is it a negative statement? Friends, he's saying there that wine is deceitful. It deceives. Strong drink in the NIV is translated as beer leads to brawls and whoever is led astray is a fool. So friends, here's our answer. What did God told the Israelites about drinking wine? He told them that wine is deceitful. You know, people like um, women who are pulled over on an RBT, if they're slight of build and uh, don't have a lot of body mass to process the alcohol, they can have one glass of wine and they can find that they're actually um, over 0.05 at a random breath testing station. So wine is deceitful. I think of the man on British Airways who stood up and told his seatmate, come on, step outside and fight me. They're on a plane 10,000 metres in the air. Do you think that man might have been deceived by alcohol? I think the answer is obvious. So wine is deceitful. Beer leads to brawls and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. We're now directed to verse 31. Solomon writes, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. There's our answer. Friends, I've had many Christians tell me there's no scripture, there's no text in the Bible that prohibits the use of alcohol. But I believe this is a verse that prohibits it. It says, don't look on the wine. Friends, how can you drink wine or alcohol without looking at it? Do you have a blindfold on? So friends, we're not even to be at, by, near or with wine, according to the New Testament text. But this says, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls and goes down smoothly. Verse 32, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. I've been told that's a very accurate um, uh, description of a hangover. And verse 33 talks about beer goggles. Your eyes will see strange things. Suddenly you'll feel romantic about other people because with your beer goggles on, everybody's looking very sexy. And then there's the perversity, the, the sinfulness of the human heart, that profanities and cursing and terrible swear words are let out of one's mouth and your heart will utter perverse things. Verse 34, what's the cure for this? Well, Solomon says that many people Say, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? It's called the hair of the dog, isn't it? Drinking yourself sober. So friends, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Let's go to question 13. What foods had God forbidden the Israelites to eat that might well have been on King Nebuchadnezzar's table? Leviticus 11 and verses 2 to 8. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Verse 3. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. So there is the rule for eating clean animals. Divides the hoof, has a split hoof, and chews the cud. However, there are some exceptions in verse 4 and 5. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves, like the camel, because it chews the cud, but it does not have cloven hoofs. So it only meets half of God's regulations. It is unclean to you. Verse 5, the rock hyrax, otherwise known as the rock badger, the coney, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hoofs, he is unclean to you. Now, I can hear some of you saying, surely, surely we're not going to eat a camel burger or a badger burger. Absolutely true. But I've been out in the desert and I've been stranded out in the desert near Sinai for hours and hours and hours and been without water and without food. And I want to tell you, friends, if you're in that predicament, anything starts to look good for a meal. Camels are disgusting. They're disgusting at both ends. At the front, they're bleh all this terrible green regurgitation and we don't even want to talk about the south end of a northbound camel friends these animals are disgraceful but god also points out two more to be avoided in verse six he says the hare or the rabbit because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs he's unclean to you and the swine though it divides the hoof having cloven hoofs yet does not chew the cud he's unclean to you here's the rule in verse eight their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. So friends, you're going to say to me, well, what? We can't have rabbit pie. We can't eat of uh, pork or ham or bacon. Friends, I want to remind you that these animals are coprophages. Uh, maybe you could look that up. I don't even want to go into it tonight. But basically, they eat their own body waste. In fact, Pigs in Europe are often fed on raw sewage and that bulks them up really quickly. A farmer was found dead in a pig's yard. He'd taken a heart attack while feeding his pigs and they only found half of him. The pigs had eaten. Pigs will eat anything and God never wants us to eat his rubbish bins. So what foods had God forbidden the Israelites to eat that might well have been on King Nebuchadnezzar's table? The answer is obvious, isn't it? From that previous verse, and verses, they are the unclean animals. By the way, did Moses give the, the delineations clean and unclean? No, they were given by God. Let me read the note under question 13. What a dilemma for these Hebrew youth. Although they were captives, they were being treated like royalty. They could even eat the king's special food and sit at his table. But to do so meant to be disobedient to the God of heaven. To fail to eat at the king's table meant to be disobedient to the king of Babylon, who was treating them so favorably. Yet Daniel and his friends did not hesitate in making a decision. Friends, they made the right decision. They decided to be disobedient to King Nebuchadnezzar and be obedient to the God of heaven. I want to just give you some extra material. So can you direct your attention to the screen before we go on to question 14? Friends, some say that the ancient Jewish food laws are actually only for the Jews and given by Moses and Aaron. But who actually gave the laws? We just read it, but let's have a look at it again in Leviticus 11 verse 1. Now the Lord, 
the Lord God, the God of Israel, spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the children of Israel, saying, these are the animals which you may eat. So, friends, the ancient food laws came from the God of heaven. Other people have asked me, why have food laws? Well, God made it very, very plain in Deuteronomy 14, 1 to 6. You are the children of the Lord your God, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, friends, one of the reasons there is holiness to the Lord, because what we eat and drink today walks and talks tomorrow. Isn't that true? I'll say it again, what we eat and drink today walks and talks tomorrow. And if the body is polluted and sick, it affects the mind-body connection to heaven, the spiritual connection, and degrades it. So some people say, well, what meat can we eat? We've been told by God what not to eat. It's very clearly laid out in Deuteronomy 14, 3 to 6. Many of you will be aware of this, but maybe you have some visitors tonight who have never seen this. Let me read it. God said to Israel, you shall not eat any detestable thing. Verse 4, these are the animals which you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that choose the cud among the animals. I don't think it can be clearer than that. So there is a whole raft of of animals that God said were clean meats. We're at the bottom of page uh, five, question 14. What decision did Daniel and his friends make in Daniel 1.8? It says at the, the top of the page, as we go over the page, top of page six, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he, Daniel, requested of the chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, that he might not defile himself. So, friends, the answer we've uh, looked at a number of times. Daniel resolved, he purposed, he chose in his heart, he made a definite decision here because he was risking his life. And so were the three companions. The four of them were risking going up against uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. There was no question here that Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor of the wine which he drank. So Daniel chooses to obey the God of Israel. There's no question in Daniel's mind. Loyalty to God was more important than loyalty to the king as I read the note. Here we see the beginning of the issue that will be illustrated again and again in the book of Daniel. God's faithful people are being brought into conflict and the issue is obedience to God or obedience to man. Like Daniel, God's people in the end time will not hesitate to choose obedience to God over obedience to man. So Daniel 1.8 is a key verse in the book. It vividly portrays why God could trust Daniel so implicitly in his experiences in ancient Babylon. Friends, I want you to look at the screen now. I have another quote that I want you to consider as why this is a big deal. What is the other issue here? In Secrets of Daniel, page 19, we read, Daniel was directly responding to the king's attempt to what? To force him into his Babylonian culture. Friends, let me ask you a question. Right now, is our society wanting to force us into its culture? Are we being told to do certain things, even against our will? Daniel was directly responding to the king's attempt to force him into his Babylonian culture, to preserve his identity, 
the exile chooses to eat and drink differently. He, the exile, Daniel, and his three friends ask for vegetables and water. Because Daniel cannot control his food sources, he wisely chooses to be a vegetarian. The safest way was to keep kosher and also the most explicit testimony to his faith in the God of creation. So friends, have a look on the screen. What are the three main issues here? Number one, the meat was already pronounced unclean according to Levitical or kosher laws. We've just gone through that in Leviticus 11. What were the kosher meat and food preparation rules? Well, number one, seven times God says not to eat blood, and that was a law in Genesis 9, Leviticus uh, 3, and all of those texts there. You can uh, pause that on the video on YouTube. This will be put up tomorrow, or you can take a photo of it now. There's another reason why we should eat no meat with blood in it. Why? Because blood represents life. This is a spiritual law. Blood is a sacred life-giving force, friends. God didn't want his people to forget that all life comes from the creator God and belongs to him. So it's not to be misused. There's a third reason. Seven times we're told not to eat blood. The second reason is a spiritual one. The third one is a health reason and it's practical. You must know that blood contains poisons and toxins that it transports around the body to expel as waste. These are called purines. When these break down into excessive amounts of uric acid, they can lead to painful conditions like gout and gouty arthritis. Friends, if you're not sure what purines are, take the P off purines and you'll have a fair idea of these waste products. Friends, people who eat meat today who are Christians often forget Genesis 9.4. This text was given before there was a Jew. This was given to Noah and his family. God says to his ancient people, all of them, but before there was a Jew, before Abraham's time, but you must not eat meat that is still that still has blood in it because blood gives life. Isn't that interesting? We're not to eat meat with blood in it. Then in Leviticus 3.17, this law will continue for people from now on. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or blood. So friends, today, Kosher food, the Jewish words kashrut or kosher meat, means fit to eat. And that is lamb that you're seeing on the screen with the blood drained out of it. But meat without blood in it is fairly tasteless and would be, have to be heavily salted or dosed in tomato sauce. God didn't want his people eating any fat or any blood. He didn't want the impurities going into his people from the blood and he didn't want the fat to do uh, damage to their heart and their arteries. There were no triple bypasses back in the days of the Israelites in the desert. So more evidence for this point of view from the scripture, Leviticus 7.23. God says, tell the people of Israel, you must, not, you must not eat any of the fat from cattle, sheep or goats. Leviticus 3.16, the priest will burn these parts of the animal on the altar as food. It's an offering made by fire and it smells as pleasing to the Lord. And then God says, all the fat belongs to the Lord. So friends, why is saturated fat bad for you? Three reasons, very quickly. Bad fats are saturated fats, hard fats found mainly in animal products such as red meat, uh, butter, full fat cheeses and trans fats. What's that? They're fats that have been solidified by the process of hydrogenation found in processed foods such as many margarines, biscuits, cakes and pies, and not to mention potato chips. Oh, 
These raise blood levels of harmful LDL, which is low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. A second reason why God didn't want his people eating fat, in particular, saturated fats are dangerous because they raise bad cholesterol and will block up the arteries to the heart. A third reason, having too much harmful cholesterol in the blood increases the risk of CHD, which is coronary heart disease, the biggest killer in the world. And that's from the BBC News World Service. So friends, again, to summarize, what are the three main issues here? Why isn't Daniel eating the meat? He cannot take the meat from the king's table because it's already pronounced unclean according to Levitical kosher laws because the blood is in it. Even the Muslims today with halal food laws drain the blood out of their animals. The food on the table has blood in it. He cannot eat it. Number two, the food on the table had previously been sacrificed to the Babylonian gods as an act of worship to strengthen and bless all those who ate of the food. Thirdly, eating the king's food is an act of worship of the Babylonian king, for there was a Nebuchadnezzar cult. And I told you already that Nebuchadnezzar was the emperor. He was the king. He was the sovereign, but he was also a god. So if they ate the king's food, they were saying that Nebuchadnezzar was their God. Does anyone remember the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The first commandment forbids worshipping all other gods. We are halfway down page six and question 15. Thank you for allowing me to share that extra information. What did Daniel ask of the chief of the eunuchs in Daniel 1.8? But Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, the meats, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself, friends. The word defile there means to make yourself ceremonially impure, to not treat something with proper respect. And so Daniel asked for an exemption. And it was a bold request for a captive Jew, and he was risking being killed by the king. Question 16, how did the chief of the eunuchs respond to Daniel's request? Well, he worked out pretty soon. This is a very dangerous request in Daniel 1 and verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into the favour and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. This is Ashpenaz. And there's our answer. He brought him into favour and goodwill. I want to read again the Living Bible. It's got a lovely turn of phrase when translating Daniel 1.9. It's on the screen. God had given the superintendent or the chief of the eunuchs a special appreciation for Daniel and sympathy for his predicament. Question 7.8. How did the chief of the eunuchs respond to Daniel's request? He said, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your face as worse looking than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. And there's the answer. I fear my lord the king. The note says the chief of the eunuchs was afraid that the health of Daniel and his three friends would not be as good if they did not eat at the king's table. If that should happen, he would be held responsible and most probably would be killed. No wonder Ashpenash, the chief of the eunuchs, was afraid. So Daniel has already thought this through and he comes up with a brilliant plan. What test did Daniel suggest in Daniel 1, 11 to 13? So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. 
and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Verse 14. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them. How long? There's our answer. It's a 10-day test. You know, if people go on a diet test today, it's usually 10 days, 10 months, 10 years. But Daniel knew that in 10 days on pure food, pure food sources, on the beautiful vegetables and pure water, that they would be markedly different to their own Israelite mates who hadn't taken the test and also to the Babylonians. Question 19, what did Daniel and his friends request to eat during the 10-day test in Daniel 1 and verse 12? Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Friends, I'm going to pause there before I read the note. When people today get seriously ill, they get a terminal disease, let's say some form of cancer, some horrendous disease. It's life-threatening. What do they do? They go out and order hamburgers, greasy food, fries. What do they do? Yes, of course they pray if they're Christians, but I have observed that people return to fresh and raw vegetable foods, to smoothies, to pure distilled water and vegetable juices. About 20 years ago, my uncle was diagnosed with prostate cancer and he made a complete change in his diet. And this also had an effect on us. We bought a green power juicer, we started juicing. We also went to a distiller because I found that the water that came out of the tap was polluted, full of uh, chemicals and uh, uh, giardia and cryptosporidium, not to mention, uh, you know, the uh, fluoride and uh, the other uh, chemicals that are put in water. And so friends, this has made a huge difference. And I made some dietary changes in the last few years. And uh, it's made a huge difference to my spiritual life, as well as help me lose weight. So friends, isn't it interesting when people get cancer, when they get sick, what do they do? They go back to vegetables and water. The note at the bottom of page six, Daniel and his friends requested a very simple Judean diet. Daniel knew that while in Babylon, he would be subjected to the fiercest tests imaginable. If he was to remain loyal to God, he must live and eat simply. He knew that if he drank the king's wine and ate the king's junk food, notice the screen, he'd be in a drunken stupor a good share of the time. And he'd be in no condition to resist temptation and could not maintain his loyalty to God. Therefore, it was of the utmost necessity that he eat simply if he was going to be loyal to God when the really big test came in Babylon. So friends, Daniel needed a clear head and he wanted to be unbefuddled by rich foods and alcohol in order to serve God throughout all the tests that would come to him. All right, I want to just share some extra material with you here on the screen. Please direct your attention to the screen. The question comes, should we all be vegetarians? Would we, would we be healthier? Would the planet, what are the risks and benefits of this? This is a Time magazine a few years ago that I've uh, cut and paste here. But the last time I ran the prophecy seminar, this question came in and I thought it might be something that you might be thinking about tonight. 
Why are so many Adventists vegetarian or plant-based food or vegans when it's apparently okay, excuse me, in the Bible to eat clean animals? Isn't that a very good question? Let me answer this way. Not all SDAs or Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. And yes, a few and more are becoming plant-based, food-based and vegans. Number two, SDAs can and do eat meat, but usually follow the clean meats commanded in Deuteronomy 14 to honour God. There are three reasons for following the biblical diet, the Genesis diet. Number one is health. In Exodus 15, 26, that none of the diseases that were put upon the Egyptians by God would come against his people. And second reason would be holiness to the Lord because of the body, mind, spiritual connection being disrupted by meat. And thirdly, it would be a spiritual test. Whatever you do, whatever you eat and drink, do all to the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. So SDAs believe their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are where the Holy Spirit loves to dwell and possess us. In 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20, you'll find that. And that they are to honour God by caring for the body, avoiding the use of that which is harmful, and abstaining from all unclean foods. Well, some of you will say that you have a view that's different to this, that there are texts that say it's okay to do this and that. Let me go to six clear texts on the recommended biblical diet. Fantastic. So here are six clear texts on the recommended biblical diet. In Genesis 1.29, fruits, nuts, and grains. In Genesis 3.18, there's the addition of vegetables. In Genesis 7, there's the clean and unmeats Unclean meat specified in Leviticus 3.17, blood and fat are forbidden. In Leviticus 11, the unclean meats are actually listed by God and the rules for it. And Deuteronomy 14, the clean meats are listed and the rules for it. So friends, whatever text that you're going off, there are six clear texts on the recommended biblical diet. And so there are four New Testament texts that are misused as supporting for eating unclean meats. And if you want more on that, just refer to Lesson 19. Um, in Exhibit 1 in Lesson 19, those four texts are covered if you need to access that tonight. And that'll be Prophecy Seminar Lesson 19, the small test with big results. Well, there's another question that will be raised by some people who are Christians tonight. Are Seventh-day Adventists guilty of keeping the Old Testament or Jewish food laws? And that's a pretty good question because most people say that those laws were done away with at the cross. So let's actually have a look at the Genesis diet in Genesis 1.29 or the first three chapters. What was man given by the creator to eat straight off? And let's find out where uh, meat actually fits into that. Where does the meat fit in? So we find, as we already said in Genesis 1.29, the original diet is grains, fruits, and nuts. The red line there typifies and represents sin comes in. God has to then add vegetables in Genesis 3.18 because man no longer has a sedentary um, occupation wandering around plucking fruit. He now has to work in the sweat of his brow and the ground has been cursed. So vegetables are added to add carbohydrates, etc. Then the blue line represents the flood. And then after the flood, there's no vegetation to eat. So God has to add in the clean meats. And you can find the first reference to that in Genesis 7, 1 and 2. So the question came, are Seventh-day Adventists following the Old Testament Jewish food laws? The answer is no. Seventh-day Adventists try and follow the diet given by God to the first man and the first woman 
that is Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.29, fruits, nuts, grains, and then vegetables were added in Genesis 3.18. This is long before the advent of Abraham, long before the time of the Jews, and none of these dietary laws, the Genesis diet was never nailed to the cross. Do I even have to ask uh, or go through what's wrong with our meats today? You know how polluted the animals are from the heavy industrial pesticides. There's the growth hormones to keep animals alive in these dreadful feedlots you've seen them in and how the manure and the feces gets into the meat. There's also the blood of the animals is toxic with purines as they're stressed out through going through the abattoirs. They can hear the other animals crying out as they're killed in very, very gross and horrendous ways. And then fourthly, the meat contains tumours and cancers. I think most people are aware of that, but don't like to think about that when they're hoeing into a hamburger. My question back to you tonight is if you are thinking along these lines, are Christian churches today guilty of disregarding God's Old Testament food laws, that is fruits, nuts, grains and vegetables given in Genesis 1, 2 and 3? Our last heading tonight as we coast down to the end of the lesson is at the top of page 7. Daniel wins the test. Question 20. At the end of the 10 days, who appeared in better health in Daniel 1, 14 and 15? So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days, 15. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Ladies, don't worry about the reference to fairer and fatter. It just means that they looked a lot more healthy than the other comrades. Verse 16, thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So the answer is obvious. At the end of the 10 days, who appeared in better health? Daniel and his three friends. The note said, those who follow God's plan always eventually win. Friends, the latest studies show the body responds best to raw food or unprocessed food. Fruits, nuts, grains and vegetables are what the body best burns into fuel. Unprocessed food. How are you going with that? Question 21. Because of Daniel's faithfulness, what did God give him in Daniel 1.17? So there's a blessing for following God's food laws. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Friends, they were given knowledge and skill in literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all dreams and visions. He's certainly going to need that as we head next week into Daniel chapter 2. By the way, that's a big, big lesson. Please make sure you look at it if you can before the we actually have our online seminar on Tuesday and Wednesday night. But if you can't, then please still join us. You are most welcome. If you haven't got time to catch up, you can catch up in the seminar. The note says under 21, the knowledge skill that Daniel and his friends possessed were not only due to their diet, although that played a role, but they also were given to them by the God of heaven because of their strict obedience to his principles. God always honors his children's obedience. And so this time God gave Daniel and his three friends the ability to see into the future and act as his prophets. And he's going to give them the history of the world in Daniel chapter two. Absolutely incredible. A great study. Look forward to it next week.
Question 22, when they took their final examinations at the university, how much better did Daniel and his friends do than everyone else? We're in Daniel 1, 18 to 20 to finish out the chapter. Now, at the end of the days, Daniel wrote, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19, then the king interviewed them and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. So friends, there's the answer. They were ten times better. Let me just share with you the note at the bottom of seven. Daniel and his friends were the best scholars in the university. They did 10 times better than anyone else in the realm. Don't miss the point. The reason they did 10 times better was not that they were superior individuals, but because of their strict obedience to the God of heaven. There are many implications in this chapter for the rest of the book. These four were not only the these four were not the only Hebrew youth confronted with the problem in Babylon. They were, however, the only four Hebrew youth selected for the university who remained faithful to God. That's a point worth underlining. That could be in the quiz. They were, however, the only four Hebrew youth selected for the university who remained faithful to God. They were also the four Hebrew youth who passed every other test in the book of Daniel. And when we study Daniel 3 and we get into the fiery furnace, and then Daniel 6 and the story of the lion's den, we see again and again that these four Hebrew youths are always faithful. Those who compromised in this first test, which seems to us to have been so very easy, evidently compromised on all the other tests that came. If we cannot remain loyal to God when the test is easy, we will not be loyal when the test is difficult. Today we live in a time of prosperity when it's relatively easy to serve God. If we cannot be obedient in this time, we will never be obedient when the real trouble comes. Friends, at the top of page eight, as we close out our lesson tonight, do you wish to be loyal and obedient to God in the time of prosperity? That you too might be loyal and true to God when times of difficulty come. Well, I've written there, yes, 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 and yes, amen and amen. Friends, I now want to answer what we discovered in tonight's lesson. How did Daniel get to Babylon? Well, it wasn't in a taxi. Nebuchadnezzar took the nation captive and dragged them to Babylon in chains. Question two, why did God allow the captivity of his people Israel? Israel had disobeyed and worshipped false gods and idols just like their neighbours. And so God said, all right, you want to worship these gods? I'll let you worship them up close and personal. And they were taken to Assyria. They were taken to Babylon. Question three, why were the four Hebrew names changed? Why? Their new names honoured the false gods of Babylon and dishonoured Yahweh. And so they were to be brought into the Babylonian cult of the king and of the gods. And then they would be loyal to Babylon when they went back to Israel. Why did God give food and drink laws? To keep Israel healthy and focused on who was the true God of Israel. And finally, does God's diet work? The proof in the scripture is unequivocal. It's yes. How many times better were they? That's a big number. They were 10 times better than all the other students in the university, whether they were Babylonian youth or whether they were Hebrew, Jewish, Israeli youth who had not decided to purpose in their heart not to defile themselves with the king's meat 
or with the king's drink and wine. What's the lesson we've learned in Daniel chapter 1 tonight as we build our tower, our wall of truth? We had the dietary test. It's to put God first in everything and obedience to God's diet laws brings health. Next week, we're going to have a look at the dream test. Well, I was excited the last two weeks to receive your envelopes. I think we've got about 12 people doing the quiz. So tonight, if you can uh, take out the sheets you've printed out and put on their PS03, they can be emailed to me. Many of you are just uh, photographing them and are sending them to me as an SMS, and that's fine. And I'll actually enter those into an Excel spreadsheet tonight. And the prize is there'll be two Bibles, a white one and a black one for the winners of the quiz and the winners of the exam, and also a voucher to the local ABC slash BBF bookstore. Let's go to the response questions. There's two boxes on the left of that uh, envelope that I've emailed out to you. Question one, is it your desire to be loyal to God in times of prosperity that you may also be loyal to God in times of adversity? If so, please place a tick in box number one. Friends, it takes times of peace like this for us to make the decision so that we don't have to do it in times of stress. Number two, would you like me to pray that God will give you the victory in your life today? Friends, you can read whatever you want in scripture and you can try and follow the food laws and drink laws. And you know what? We will fail and fail and fail again. I'm suggesting tonight from my own experience that there is a power outside of our, ourselves that we can call on. That is the power of the God of Israel, the living God, the God of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he will give us power to overcome. And so I'm asking tonight that you pray, and I'll be happy to pray for you as well, that God will give you the victory in your life today over whatever is in your life that is destroying or diminishing your relationship with the God of heaven. We have five quiz questions tonight. Let's go straight into quiz question number one. The two issues over which controversy arises in the book of Daniel are the issues of worship and obedience true or false thank you so much for those doing the quiz um, if you write the name true and you write the name false we're not having any t's that look like f's or f's that look like t's that's brilliant question two all the children of israel refuse to eat the king's food and drink his wine is that true or is that false mm, i think we covered that pretty clearly didn't we even in the notes Number three, the reason Daniel would not eat the king's food and drink his wine was that he thought he was better than everyone else. True or false? I don't think you'll need too long to think that one through. Let's hurry on to number four. As a result of their loyalty to God, Daniel and his friends did 10 times better than anyone else in the university. True or false? Once again, I think we've covered that answer pretty comprehensively and number five the only ones who passed the severe tests in daniel were those who passed the small test of diet in daniel chapter one is that true or false all right friends then we are going for the answers so get ready to mark your answers number one the answer is true the main controversy arises in the book of daniel over the issue of worship and obedience give yourself a tick or a mark for that out of five. Number two, all the children of Israel refused to eat the king's food and drink his wine. That's false. 
It was pretty much Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the four of them. The other youth taken from uh, the king's line, the king's bloodline from Judah, they didn't make a stand. They didn't want to risk their lives with the king. That must have been embarrassing, mustn't it, for Daniel and his three friends. Number three, the reason Daniel would not eat the king's food and drink his wine is he thought he was better than everyone else. In fact, he didn't. He was even concerned for Ashpenash, the king, the chief of the eunuchs, wasn't he? And so that answer is false. Number four, as a result of their loyalty to God, Daniel and his friends did 10 times better than anyone else in the university. We didn't make that number up. That was the number that scripture gave us, 10 times better. Friends, if you ever make a sacrifice over diet in your life, I want to tell you God will bless you. In fact, the greatest test that comes, the first test that comes will be over diet and appetite. And I testify to you, if you cannot make a decision in that area and gain the victory through the power of God, then I think victories in other areas of your life will be long coming or lacking. And I say that because that's been something I've had to go through myself and my spiritual uh, link with God right now is very much stronger for the changes that I've made in my diet and I'm really enjoying my devotional times in a way I haven't during the rest of my life. Question five, the only ones who passed the severe test in Daniel were those who passed the small test in Daniel chapter one. The answer is true. We have three trues and two falses. Give yourself a score out of five and I look forward to getting your answers tonight. So friends, in our wall of truth, we are building a foundation. We did lesson one. It was the introduction and the dating of the book of Daniel. We gave you reasons why it was written in the sixth century. Last week, we looked at the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And tonight we looked at obedience and the diet test. Friends, um, thank you for being here tonight, Wednesday at 7.30 on the great controversy begins. And then next week, here is lesson number four. I uh, I will send that out to you tomorrow or the next day. For those of you who don't have access or send me an email if you don't have access to that lesson. Um, these are available through ABC, Adventist Book Centers or Better Books and Food. It's entitled Conflict Through the Centuries and that will be screened here, same time, same channel. Lesson for Wednesday night, a week from tonight, and also next Tuesday night, depending on which night you can join us. There are identical sessions on PS Lesson 4. And why not invite someone? We will also place tonight's video up on YouTube tomorrow in the True SDA, True, True Blue SDA video channel. Friends, as we close our meeting tonight, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have really poured over the book of Daniel tonight and gone into great depth. Father, we've gone beyond just the surface reading and we have drilled down into the mine of truth. Father, thank you so much for showing us that if we are faithful to the health and dietary laws, that you will bless us spiritually with a stronger link to yourself. Thank you, Father, for the example of Daniel and his three friends who stood firm at the risk of death. They stood firm and followed the God of heaven in these matters. I pray, Lord, that I and the people who are listening tonight and today on YouTube will be also like that and will be strong in their resolve to follow you all the way and tonight we ask it in Jesus powerful name let all the people say amen
You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.